Good morning. Welcome to First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth, meaning, and beauty, and we welcome each and every one of you here this morning. We come from a long tradition of seeing a spark of the divine in every person, and it's in that tradition that I invite you to turn to those around you and greet the holy among us this morning. It is also our tradition in Unitarian Universalist churches to begin our services by lighting a chalice, which is a symbol of our faith. Please say with me our words for lighting the chalice. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. Good morning. We have a responsive reading this morning. It's called Collective Liberation by the Reverend Chris Jimerson. I reach for my fullest potential in a world that pits my full potential against yours. Together we can all better reach for our full potential. I am taught to fear difference. By embracing our differences, we learn to grow and may be transformed. The privileges I have been given, the power to oppress, leaves me trapped within those same systems of oppression. Collectively, we can change those systems and liberate us all. Racism, sexism, classicism, radical capitalism, gender and sexuality biases, religious bigotries, these conspire together to bind us all into silos of spiritual emptiness. Together we can burst through these silos of disconnection and journey together toward wholeness and holiness. Come, let us enter into this journey together. Together, we celebrate our collective vision of beloved community. Together, we build that vision. Unitarian Universalism is a faith of many beliefs. We don't have one common set of beliefs that we all have to sign on to and agree to. We don't have a creed. So sometimes people ask us, well, what holds you together? Well, a lot holds us together, I think. And at this church, one of the things that holds us together is our mission. It's our common purpose, and we say it together every Sunday. Together, we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build beloved community. The centering reading is a responsive reading. It's called A Network of Mutuality. It's by Martin Luther King, Jr. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. There are some things in our social system to which all of us ought to be maladjusted. Hatred and bitterness can never cure the disease of fear. Only love can do that. We must evolve for all human conflict a method which rejects revenge, aggression, and retaliation. 
the foundation of such a method is love. Before it is too late, we must narrow the gaping chasm between our proclamations of peace and our lowly deeds which precipitate and perpetuate war. One day we must come to see that peace is not merely a distant goal that we seek, but a means which we arrive at that goal. We must pursue peaceful ends through peaceful means. We shall hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. Now is the time in our service when we breathe together. And breathing together, feeling the loving presence of those around us, we follow our breath to a deeper place inside, a place of greater knowledge, of greater wisdom, a place where our hearts are free, that spark of the divine within each of us. And breathing together, we enter into a time of sacred silence together, remembering that human sounds and the sounds of small children are a part of that silence in this congregation. Breathing together, let us enter into that time of sacred silence together. If you have come here to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have become, come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. That quote, which is on the cover of your order of service this morning, is from a saying among Australian Aboriginal rights activists. It captures very succinctly the essence of our topic this morning, the concept, the theology even, called collective liberation. African-American feminist scholar and activist Bell Hooks says that we need to add to that practicing what she calls an ethic of love. 
She says, choosing love will allow us to see through systems of domination and oppression and how they interlock. She says, we must actively choose love. We must act out love as a verb, including for ourselves. She says that without love, our struggles for liberation will lack spiritual depth and that we will remain isolated. She talks about African-American males fighting racial injustice while at the same time continuing to support the patriarchy. White feminist women who, who will have blind spots regarding racism. These are just two examples that she gives of what she means by this isolation. I want to share with you three stories, each from one of three different times I attended an institution of higher education. I'm sharing this with you because I think they help illustrate some of the concepts behind collective liberation, as well as some of the challenges and struggles we face as we do the work of it. Now, one of those concepts is privilege, of which I suppose having been able to go to such institutions three times is a grand example. First story, I was traveling from the little small southeast Texas town where I grew up to the big city of Beaumont where I was going to college, and I noticed that I was out of gas. This was an 8 o'clock class. It was early in the morning. I was 18 and still half asleep. So I pulled over to a little store, filled my tank up, drove off and never paid. Went to class, got back to my grandparents' house where I was staying at the time and two police officers from the little town showed up at the door. So my white deacon of the First Baptist Church grandfather and I met them on the breezeway and he explained to them what a good kid I was and I explained how I was just sleepy, I forgot to pay, and they let me off the hook. My grandfather called in a credit card number and then the police actually got on the phone and told them they should demand that people pay up front so this won't happen. It was only much after that that I thought, what would have happened to me if I had been an African-American kid? Might I have been arrested? Might the course of my life have been changed by that one stupid mistake? This is an example of systems of unearned privilege in which we live whether we like it or not. I was able to go on with my life because I was white. The problem is we don't always see these systems of privilege because we're like fish swimming in the water. It's just what happens to us, right? And so when people bring up our white privilege, our male privilege, our hetero privilege, our class privilege, our privilege from being temporarily abled, our cisgendered privilege, CIS, it just means that I identify as the gender I was assigned at birth. When people bring up this privilege, we can get defensive, right? We can want to say, I earn where I got in life. Or we can say, don't blame me. I, I don't want this stuff. I don't want this privilege. The deal is, if we can start to see it, if we can see the real harm it is doing to people who are oppressed, we begin to realize that it is also doing harm to those of us who also are privileged by it. I'm going to talk more about that in a little bit. Second story. Years later, I had gone back to college to get a degree in psychology. 
By that time, I had become a lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer rights activist. I'd become an HIV-AIDS activist. I was working in HIV research, providing treatment for HIV. I had joined the activist groups Queer Nation and ACT UP. And through these connections, I had begun to become aware of other forms of oppression and get involved in activism related to those, too, especially as it involved how HIV was moving into other populations. I began to see the racism all around me. I began to see how women, even at our activist meetings, were being silenced and ignored. I began to see the barriers against which disabled people came up against. And I began to see how all of these different isms held up and reinforced one another. That's called intersectionality. I'll talk about it in a little bit. And I thought, boy, I am really doing the work. I am an all-around anti-oppression warrior. Then one morning I had left a class and I was walking across campus and I noticed that I was feeling anxiety and fear. And then I realized that unconsciously I had walked in a wide circle to avoid coming together with a group of my fellow students who happened to be African-American and were cutting up and having a good time. And then I noticed that I hadn't done the same thing with a group of white students that were acting the very same way. So all of my unconscious bias was suddenly pulled into my consciousness. I was devastated. I was, I couldn't believe it. I was like, I, I'm, I'm an anti-oppression warrior. How could I have this racist stuff going on? Well, of course I could have it going on. It was how I had been taught since the moment I was born. And there were no white anti-racist models or mentors in that little southeast Texas town where I grew up. But then, then I started thinking about something. If we can pull ourselves out of that guilt and shame and move past it when these moments happen where what has been unconscious and implicit becomes explicit to us when we realize it, if we can do that, we can begin to have moments of learning and transformation. We can begin to decolonize our minds, as Chris Crass, our Unitarian Universalist who does education and activism around anti-racism and education, puts it. The other thing that I realized in that moment, though, is that if I had internalized all this racist BS, I had probably also internalized all the anti-gay BS and was living out my own oppression. And so I realized that this is lifelong work, that it doesn't stop. We don't just do the work and go, okay, I'm not a racist anymore. It's the water we swim in. Last story. I was attending one of my first classes in seminary this time. It was a a class on pastoral care and counseling. It was a class we had to take before we would do a student internship as a chaplain in a hospice or a hospital. And one day they gave us a list of feelings. There were three columns on each side of the page, each of those columns filled with feeling words. And I looked at that list and I realized that I didn't even know what some of those words meant, that I had never allowed myself to feel some of those feelings, because in that little southeast Texas town where I grew up, the only emotion males were allowed to express or acknowledge to ourselves was anger. Oddly enough, that's the one emotion that females were not allowed to express. 
So the males, we were supposed to stuff all this stuff down deep inside, suppress all those feelings so that, what, I don't know, they could come back in middle age and cause us to have a heart attack? I don't know. The thing is, to be the minister and just the person I wanted to become, I had to reclaim those feelings. I had to get about the work of reclaiming these parts of myself. And that's when I realized that privilege and systems of supremacy come at a heavy cost even to those who are a part of the dominant group and also get benefits from them. The story also demonstrates the intersectionality I mentioned earlier. I have an intersexual identity, right? I have been oppressed because of being a gay man, but I've also had privilege because I was white and male. Intersectionality talks about how those things interact with each other. Other folks have intersectionality because they have more than one way that they experience oppression. For instance, an Asian transgender woman. And then finally, intersectionality also talks about, again, how those systems of oppression interact, hold each other up, strengthen each other, and keep each other going. So we will never, never rid ourselves of the patriarchy as long as there is still racism. And we will never, never get rid of racism as long as LGBTQ people are discriminated against, for example. Now, I want to let you hear someone else's, who's not white's, perspective on this intersectionality idea. I've gotten better to figure out, as a man, all the things I do sometimes that can be misogynist, that can be sexist. That, honestly, at a certain point, I didn't even realize. I had a moment, I was with a manager at a store I worked at, and someone walked into the store, a man walked into the store, talked to me directly, assumed I was in charge. Literally assumed I was in charge. But the first person he saw, he thought I was in charge. The woman next to me was actually the manager of the store. As I tell him, she's actually the manager. A face hits this man of straight disbelief and shock. And he just puts his head down and he walks out. She says, did you notice that he didn't even look at me? I was like, what? And then me, being a man, I tried to talk it out for a second. Like, well, maybe I was the first person he saw. Maybe that's why. And then I had to realize and say... I cannot in good conscience say that to this woman, knowing that if the terms were flipped and it was in a racial lens, I would have saw it as easy as pie. But because I saw it, because it was in a sex, it was in a lens of sex and I didn't recognize it because I wasn't at the downside of it. I couldn't see it. So this is the importance of sharing stories, because if you share a story, you can maybe somehow realize and see the humanity in that story. And that's the important because intersectionality is really important because I realize I am a black man. But there are so the the level of racism that black people get in this country le is levied on me in a certain way. And then I realize there are black women in this country that get levied a certain kind of racism that is different from mine, but it's still dangerous. It is still deadly. And if I don't acknowledge that, I'm doing them a disservice. And then there are queer folks. Right. And then there are black queer folks that have to deal with being queer and being black all at the same time. And what's levied on them is different. And if I don't acknowledge them and know that they are a part of my revolution too, I am lost. And that's the one thing I've realized that I've gotten older and I've realized intersectionality. If I can't see my sister liberation in mine, I'm not seeing anything. If, if a person is queer and I don't see their liberation inside my own, I don't see anything. I literally don't want liberation. I want me to be okay.
I want us to be okay. So learning intersectionality and seeing that and understanding that it exists in a very real and visceral way has made me a better person because I've realized there are people going through things that I understand. And there's also people going through things that I don't understand. And there's times to talk and there's times to listen. I've gotten much better at listening. I, I got the talking thing down pack. I've been a good talker since I've been five. Since I've been able to form functional words, I've been figuring out how to spit them out. I've gotten really good at listening over the past few years and learning stories that even though they're not mine, don't mean they're not important, don't mean I shouldn't share them. And that's the thing. So collective liberation involves seeing this intersectionality in all of its forms. Bell Hooks says it this way. Until we are all able to accept the interlocking, interdependent nature of systems of domination and recognize specific ways each system is maintained, we will continue to act in ways that undermine our individual quest for freedom and collective liberation struggle. Now, a church member recently sent me a document that I wanted to share with you because it lists the cost of oppression even to people in dominant groups. I don't have time to go through all of it this morning, but you were offered copies on your way in, and there are more if you didn't get one. I want to remember, though, and and note that these systems do even more harm to those whom they oppress. Systems of privilege and supremacy thrive. They survive by keeping us isolated from each other and ultimately relatively powerless. They allow more and more wealth to be concentrated into less and less hands. And just for instance, wealth and income inequality in the U.S. has steadily risen over the past several decades such that the wealthiest 1% now own 40% of everything in this country. And if this system is so great, why is it the examples I can think of of people who have focused their lives on accumulating wealth and power so often seem so full of rage and distrust? Why do they seem so miserable and at the same time inflicting misery on others? Mr. Temper Tantrums on Twitter, for example. (laughs) I believe, I believe, that these intersectional systems of supremacy, racism, unfettered capitalism, heteropatriarchy, classism, radical individualism, and ableism are becoming an existential threat to us all. Let me give you just a couple of examples. We are experiencing an epidemic of disconnectedness and loneliness in this country. Over 35% of adults report chronic loneliness. Average life expectancy in the U.S. has fallen for the past three years in a row due to rising drug overdoses and suicides likely because of this disconnectedness. That began primarily among poor and working class white Americans, and now it's spread into what's left of the middle class and even into the upper class. The other example, of course, is the unexpectedly rapid progression of global climate change that has already begun to threaten human life and well-being in some geographic areas and will eventually threaten all life. 
Just as one example, our oceans are warming 40% faster than the United Nations Climate Panel predicted just a few years ago. That is not sustainable. And folks, it is these very same supremacy systems I've been talking about that combine together to hold up a political system and an unfettered capitalistic economic system through which powerful corporations, big agriculture, and corporatized meat production are killing our planet faster than all of our individual environmental efforts combined can prevent as wonderful and as necessary as those efforts are. These intersectional systems of oppression have become an existential threat to all of us. Well, the good news is that collective liberation theology says that since these systems of oppression are intersectional, so too are our systems for liberation, collectively, in solidarity and rooted in love, we can come together with so many others and create new systems. Already, there are groups working together to create create new forms of socially responsible, successful businesses and corporations that are democratically controlled by their workers or that have a hierarchical system, but one in which who is in what position gets rotated periodically. Already, groups like Black Lives Matter and their white allies are joining together with LGBTQ groups, women's rights groups, and so many more to build greater power for changing our institutions and policies. Recently, a surprisingly broad coalition of interest groups was able to successfully get criminal justice reform enacted at the federal level, and they're getting similar reforms advancing in many of our states. I love how Chris Kress, who I mentioned earlier, puts it when talking about why we would want to ally with each other like this, why we would work collectively for liberation. He writes, my goal isn't to be a great ally. My goal is the abolition of white supremacist capitalist heteropatriarchy and the building up of multiracial democracy, economic, gender, and racial justice for all, and a world where the inherent worth and dignity of all people and the interconnection of life are at the heart of our cultures, institutions, and policies. That sounds a lot like building the beloved community to me. And folks, we can only do that collectively with each other and with so many others who share a vision of beloved community. Collective liberation is spiritual work. It'll be difficult at times. We will make mistakes. We'll have to forgive ourselves and we'll have to forgive each other. Sometimes we'll have to form loving relationship with people who have very different life experiences and worldviews than our own. But I believe this is the sacred work our Unitarian Universalist faith is called to do, especially, especially in this time wherein forces so hostile to it have arisen. Collective liberation allows us together and with so many others to find joy, 
beauty, humor, love, and community even amidst our struggles for liberation. It's how we journey toward wholeness and begin to create holiness in this world, in this time. Beginning right here. Beginning right now. Amen. Please say with me our words for extinguishing the chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. For the benedictions, I want to leave you with more wise words from Bell Hooks. The moment we choose to love... We begin to move towards freedom, to act in ways that liberate ourselves and others. That action is the testimony of love as the practice of freedom. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.